Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And you know, I'm always talking about the fact that I think one of the greatest, biggest disservices that this industry does to itself is the fact that we don't educate the, the way we should be. We we literally have done a lot of B2B education, but in the last year or so, and especially during COVID, uh, when people have been locked down and we have an opportunity to influence the way people think and and to help them get the information that they need to make good sound decisions for themselves and their family we have been a little bit short when it comes to that especially as an industry and i think that you know there are some that are out there that are working very very hard every single day to make sure that you know they put good solid medically based scientifically based information in the hands of the consumer in the hands of patients who are searching for you know alternatives to you know the regimens that they may have been put on by you know uh, western medication and leaving cannabis out of the conversation so i'm so happy to have a guest on today my guest has been selected as one of the top 100 most influential individuals in cannabis he's a board certified doctor of family medicine and after an early career in brain imaging research at UCLA, he graduated from Williams College and completed his medical degree at Tufts University of Medicine and his residency at Boston University. In addition to a practice as a primary care physician at some of Boston's foremost hospital, he served as the chief medical officer of one of the largest medical cannabis healthcare groups in the United States, overseeing the clinical evaluations of over 250,000 medical patients. He has supervised and has, mon has mentored hundreds of physicians across the United States and abroad, and has served as an investigator for multiple pharmaceutical research studies, and has been published in premier medical journals, including the New England Medical Journal of Medicine. Dr. Benjamin Kaplan, thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today, sir. Montel, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. And, you know, I read that uh, you were doing research at the Brain Mapping Institute at UCLA early in your career. And my good friend, Dr. Babek Katab, is the founder of the Society of Brain Mapping and Therapeutics in Los Angeles. And I just attended this last year's gala and absolutely was, was blessed to have received an award from them. So we have a little bit in common. How about that? Yeah, that's funny. Um, Dr. Maziata at the time was the the chief doctor um, in charge of all the research studies, and he took me under his wing. Uh, brilliant man, you know, with with more board certifications than I could ever hope to to sort of uh, have time to achieve. He just was a prolific reader and taught me about critical thinking, um, and I think that bestowed on me a chance to to push boundaries in the future, and that's what I'm trying to do. Well, I'm so glad that you were doing that. Let's talk a little bit about how you first became interested in cannabis as a treatment option as a physician, especially mm -hmm. when so many in your field, you know, literally have poo-pooed this until recently when I think some of them caught on to the fact that there might be some money out there. Mm -hmm. Now all of a sudden there's those who were adamantly against five years ago and now all of a sudden jumped onto a bandwagon in some cases and others have done the real research and actually recognized that you know, I, I just read something recently that the, in the last 10 years, there's been over 37,000 peer-reviewed published documents out there, 3,500 of them in the last, well, two years ago, and 3,700 of them published last year, um, extolling some of the virtues of cannabis. But 
What brought you into to thinking cannabis was a treatment option as a physician? So one of the cool things I want to share with you, Montel, um, before I dive into the, to me, um, one of my missions is to bring all of that literature you're just talking about to the public. Um, I actually started the world's largest archive of cannabis publications. And on my website, people can have access for free to read all of the stuff that is published. They don't have to go multiple places. I'm collecting it. I'm hoarding it all and making it available so that people can read it and not think that there isn't research in cannabis because there certainly is. Well, you know, and I, I'm glad you said that because I got to tell you something. I I literally have been on this bandwagon for not bandwagon, but, but but I've been talking about this now for 20 years. But I I am disturbed constantly when I hear out of another physician's mouth or out of a legislator's mouth, well, we need to have more research. Research hasn't been done. And I, I feel like reaching across the, into the screen and smacking a person upside of the face saying that, you know, 37,000 peer-reviewed research documents is, I think, about five times as many research documents uh, that are published on alcohol and I know uh, probably about three times as many that are published on things as basic as aspirin. So you're, I mean, you're full. You're full right, Montelli. And it's actually much larger. That number is much larger than thirty-seven thousand. There are over half a million articles about cannabis and its constituents. So we have to remember the public understands cannabis as THC and CBD. Kind of case closed. They think that's all there is. Um, there are over five hundred and fifty components of this plant. 150 of them are cannabinoids. These are molecules which bind to cannabinoid receptors in our, in our bodies. But there are 400 others that also have medicinal value. And those things have all been studied. Um, it's, it's, it's really just a matter of nobody's looking, you know, and the doctors that, that do aren't reading very, very carefully. Yeah, I know. It, it blows my mind because, I mean, you know, uh, 10 years ago, I was in Dr. Mishulam's laboratory. I'm one of the first people to actually put him on film in an interview. And I didn't realize back then, 10 years ago, this is back in 2011, I didn't realize back then that he had been funded in the 80s and the 90s by U.S. dollars. I mean, you know, this is one of the things that that, that I think most people aren't aware of either because we continue to lie to the public. But, you know, our U.S. government funded research in Israel that helped identify things like the endocannabinoid system, helped identify and find THC, CBD, helped identify the fact that there were back then, he was extolling that there were 60 plus cannabinoids, but like I think you hit it on the head that we're now starting to identify that there's probably 200, may have 150 plus distinct cannabinoids. And then when you look at the terpenes and you look at the flavonoids and you look at the, you know, some of the other constituent parts of this plant, this was research that had been done, has already been done. And I, I, I often say, you know, how dare, you know, a professional who goes to college and graduates and is, is, is steeped in knowledge and gets a degree as a doctor who doesn't understand that his knowledge didn't stop the day he got his degree. His knowledge has to continually be updated as we move forward. That's why there's, there's things that are called, you know, um, continuing medical education, CMEs that are out there. And for doctors to say, well, there's not enough research, I get just completely blown away. I was watching a recent uh, special that Dr. Sanjay Gupta did. Mm -hmm. And Sanjay and I are, are very good friends. I, 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 like to kind of take a little credit for the fact that I called him out on Pierce Morgan uh, years ago. And that was the reason why he even did his very first special that he will now acknowledge. Mm -hmm. It was my calling him out that forced him to, to change his mind back, what, five years ago. But 
even as we move forward, and then Sanjay and I had a long conversation about the fact that it wasn't a mistake, but you know, his very first special was so CBD centric that people thought that the conversation ended there and the conversation didn't end there. And then we watched his most recent special. And on that special, he had a couple of doctors on that ooh, 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 kept saying, well, there still needs to be more research. And I was like, are you kidding me? Stop. But let, right. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And, and his his special on CNN last night about autistic children was really moving. Um, you know, I've been I've been treating autistic children with with cannabis for a couple of years now. Um, I have one of the only pediatric clinics that's a one stop shop. You know, I, I try to make the whole process easy for patients that we see, both young and old. Um, anybody that needs cannabis needs guidance. Um, but I've been seeing folks with with autism um, and their families for years, so I, I'm really excited. The word's getting out, at least. Well, what got you started, sir? I mean, I'll go back to that question. I mean, sure. you, you clearly graduated from school with the same information of all your peers. And back then they were saying it's a schedule one drug and you got to, you can't. Well, I'll tell you, I'll, t I'll tell you, Montel, I've never really liked playing by other people's rules, um, but especially so when I think the rules are outdated. Um, in medicine, I think there are two different types of doctors. One set of docs that practices the way things are and the way they have been for a long time. Um, then there's another type of doctor that pushes boundaries, challenging old standards against what's coming in the future. Um, that's my comfort zone, actually pushing the envelope toward a new way of doing things. Um, but I certainly don't abandon all of the wisdom of the past. I just want to push science toward something better. Well, you know, I heard from a, 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 a one of a very, very, very interesting doctor who has been touted as one of the top doctors in you know, um, uh, the neurological field um, said to me one time, he said, my tall is I've, I've been working on lots of different medical initiatives myself. Um, uh, I uh, got involved with uh, taking a, 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 a paradigm that was had wallowed at the University of Wisconsin for about 20 years, helped to move that forward in neuromodulation uh, for uh, a, a project that's called the Pons device that actually as the only device listed in the world now has 40 something patents and a device that has now been peer reviewed, studied and printed and written about the fact that it actually does put the brain in a plastic state mm -hmm. and helps the brain find pathways around damage. And this doctor said to me, the Montel, any breakthroughs in medicine um, that are transformative are normally met with the most mm -hmm. vehement and adamant resistance from the medical community. So I, I get what you're saying about, you know, doctors don't like to think outside the box. They like to think inside that box that they were educated in. And if someone's outside the box, they go, wait a minute. But you back, I mean, how long ago did you decide that, you know, maybe, maybe there's something to this whole cannabis thing? You know, I, Montel, I think it's it's a good thing, actually, um, that doctors aren't jumping on every new fad. You know, we don't want people to be swinging one way or the other. Oh, I heard this and all of a sudden treatment changes. I think we need to some degree, we need medicine to be a slow elephant that moves little bit by little bit, not kind of pulling by tides that, that change with the culture. Um, but of course, it's frustrating when the mass of doctors is not aware of what's already out there. I mean, these doctors are, are well trained by the establishment. Um, but as you as you said, they're not reading the education that's coming down the pipeline. Um, and that's really sad. My introduction actually came from my patients. Um, I grew up in the same ignorant, misinformed culture that we all did. Um, I thought cannabis was a stepping stone to being a drug dealer and doing terrible things. Um, I was just completely ignorant um, from from my upbringing and, and from the schooling around me. 
including through medical school. You know, in medical school, cannabis is taught as part of the addiction group, um, and it's taught as an avoidance. Um, people are not taught how it helps. We're not taught about the endocannabinoid system. Um, you know, to this day, most people out there don't understand that all of us were born with an endocannabinoid system. This is a basic fundamental communication tool in our bodies. Um, almost every single one of our immune cells, the inflammatory system, our, our army of soldiers in our blood, those are all attached with cannabinoid receptors. Um, almost all of our nervous cells, the nerves in our body are cannabinoid involved. Um, and to think that we could live in a, in a medical culture where dopamine doesn't exist or serotonin doesn't exist. It's, it's just silly. Um, and cannabinoid system is, is the same, you know, it's part of every living thing. Um, you know, it in the does, animal does, does it not baffle you though, that still even today, having found this research out back in 1986, mm. you know, 86, 87, 88, that's when we discovered, that's when Dr. Mishun discovered the endocannabinoid system. So I would think sure. that by now, 30 years, 25, 20 something years has gone by. We should at least be willing to be open enough to say, hmm, maybe we need to start teaching this so that doctors understand that all mammals have an endocannabinoid system. And we recognize that, you know, those endocannabinoids, when we explain to people, and I try to explain on the show what that is, that means that our bodies create our own endogenous and en uh, cannabinoids, which are anandamide and 2-AG, and those things are the only two chemicals in our body that run retroactively. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and, and Montel, you know, let's be blunt. Let's take a um, an example, which is, you know, doctors are. Getting older in their in their studies, most doctors are out on the field after 20 years of education, um, and it's it's not embarrassing, but it's intimidating to have a whole new field of medicine open up and they have to learn about this, you know, in, in the medical office. Um, doctors are supposed to be the experts in the room. And if they have patients coming in who have tried cannabis, who have talked to their friends and found that it's helping them, you know, the tables quickly turn and doctors feel like they're not the experts anymore. And, you know, they're people too. They feel intimidated, maybe insecure about that. Um, you know, and I think a group of those doctors are rushing to the books. They're rushing to lectures. They're trying to learn more. Um, but some of those doctors are, are just overworked and, and, and underrun and, and, you know, they're not able to learn much. Um, and those doctors you know, I think rightly so, push their patients, encourage them to seek experts. You know, we treat cannabis medicine now as, as a specialty of medicine, just like rheumatology or dermatology. Uh, maybe your specialist, I'm sorry, maybe your primary care doctor doesn't know how to help you. And maybe it's appropriate to see a medical specialist. Um, and that's one of my goals is to build the medical specialty of cannabis medicine. And I'm, I applaud you for doing that. Now, you served as the chief medical officer of one of the largest medical cannabis healthcare groups in the United States, overseeing clinical evaluations of 250,000 medical patients. And that's quite an impressive number. What, what did you learn from that experience? I tell you, I learned what not to do. Um, you know, that group, like most groups in the country today, um, was mostly rubber stamping. Um, you know, doctors these days um, who are in the cannabis field are also undereducated. You know, they are often retired from their field. They're often you know, not very experienced with cannabis medicine as, as, a, as a research subject. Um, they are interested in helping people. Um, to some extent, a few of them are the free love kind of doctors, um, and they're just happy to let people go, but they're not really challenging people. They're not really learning from people in, in a rigorous data sort of sense, um, learning what's working, learning what's not working in a, in a formal way. Um, so the system really is sort of just beginning or, or, or kind of barely begun. You know, far too many folks 
who are seeking relief through cannabis for chronic pain, sleeplessness, anxiety, and depression um, are having to figure the cannabis care out themselves. Um, you know, with semi-knowledgeable friends, family members sometimes, or whichever bud tender happens to be behind the counter on a given day, um, too many cannabis doctors are simply writing medical cards and then leaving patients to their own devices. And you, you've you uh, been digging in deep into these 250,000 patients and correlating some of their anecdotal with, you know, I guess, collecting scientific data, right? Putting right. that together to help people understand that, you know, well, it may be that I've got out of 250,000, 150 of them who all suffer from this malady and, and 60 of them have said that this particular strain with this particular profile seems to be what is helping them. Is that what you're right. doing? That, that's exactly right. Um, you know, the medical industry has fallen in love a little bit with itself um, and it doesn't often question what it does regularly. You know, for example, we were talking before how everybody's, oh, there aren't enough randomized controlled trials. Um, let's take a step back and say, wait a minute, is a randomized controlled trial the right tool to evaluate cannabis? You know, in a randomized controlled trial, we look at different variables and we see kind of what might be a confounding variable to, to, to lead us astray. We also often compare a therapy against the placebo effect. Well, the placebo effect, as most of your audience knows, is this kind of under, a poorly understood thing, which tends to work about 30% of the time, but we don't really understand where it's coming from. And if we pause and say, wait a minute, there's this system in the human body, which we don't really deeply understand, and it happens to work, it seems like it works for a lot of things, you can see there's a parallel between the placebo effect and our endogenous endocannabinoid system. Um, so I think actually randomized controlled trials might not be the tool of choice for the medical industry. Um, instead, you know, my take has been there's a better one, which is mathematics. Um, you know, if you have a jar of marbles, and you ask a whole group of people to guess how many marbles there are, the average of all of those guesses is almost always the right one. So if we can use that logic and survey what cannabis is working for how many people, um, we can start to understand sort of what the real effects are simply by listening to people in a, in a formal way. And I, and I think one of the things that the key thing that you just said is listening to people. I mean, unfortunately, you know, a, a lot of times, Doctors, don't listen. I remember, you know, I, I got involved in cannabis back in 2000, long before it was Vogue, long before, you know, everybody assumed a green rush, long before people were even talking about the, you know, the different cannabinoids. And, and, and back in 2000, why did I get involved? I got involved because I got a diagnosis myself with MS. And unfortunately, you know, what the doctors do back then, the uh, same thing that they're still doing right now, writing too many damn prescriptions for opioids. And so back then, because my my illness manifested itself and presented itself through extreme neuropathic pain, you know, the answer to that was load them up with as many, you know, DINs or Vicodins and then whatever set they could figure out that was opioid based. And unfortunately, what doctors are starting to realize now is that there are certain people in this population who don't do well on opioids when it comes to any kind of beneficial way. And I was one of those people. I, it, it, I very quickly went from, you know, if one's not good enough, 20 are good or better. You know, I went from, you know, if one of this one's not right, then I'll take five of those. And if five of those didn't help, then the next day I took seven of those. And I got to a point where I almost shut down my liver and my kidneys. And I had a very, very smart doctor way back then, you know, a Harvard trained doctor who said, you know, look, I can't 
tell you what to do, but I've heard about, you know, first of all, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop writing you prescriptions and I'm going to call all the doctors that I know you're doctor shopping with and make sure they don't write you any prescriptions. But I think what you might find is that I've heard that this stuff called marijuana, there's a particular type of that that might work. I don't know, but I've heard from some of my other patients that it helps them. And I don't know about it. You're a smart guy. Go do the research and you figure it out yourself. But I'll never say I told you that. And that was back in 2000. And by 2001, you know, he said, I remember him saying something that there's some particular type of cannabis, of marijuana. He didn't say cannabis. He was saying marijuana. That's a CBBD, CBCB. That's the way he said it. Some CBBDBBD, something like that. I don't know what it is, but you could probably find it out. And I found out very quickly that it was CBD back in 2000 and then recognized and realized that, you know, we lived in a country that worked as hard as it could to grow the CBD out of plants. And back in the early 2000s and back in the 80s and 90s, that's what most of the growers in Northern California, you know, in that Golden Triangle up there and in, in Canada were trying to do, was trying to get rid of the CBD and add more THC. But I was able to find a strain that was more CBD laden. And back then, you know, we're talking about plants that weren't more than maybe 11% THC and two to three percent CBD anyway. I found one that was about seven percent and got some relief. And that's what set me on my journey with cannabis. And then I've watched now over the course of the last 20 years, you know, most of the growers going back to the 60s and 70s trying to grow this, you know, they're trying to add CBD, but they're trying to make sure they push the THC as high as they can. And you know, and my journey with cannabis has been a roller coaster because you know there were times when CBD plants worked well for me. But then times that I didn't get relief from that at all. And I had to shift over and start using a higher THC plant. And then I started realizing, hmm, wait a minute, maybe it's not the CBD and THC that's really answering my question. Maybe it's the terpenes. And so I started looking into developing out my own brand and, and something that worked for me that had particular terpene profile that was working for a while. But then I had to modify that also. And so, so Montel, if only you'd come to my clinic, I have about 30 or 40 patients who are dealing with MS. I have, you know, one girl who used to be a ballerina um, and she all of a sudden she couldn't walk, she couldn't move. Um, and, you know, through iterative care, through personalized care, we learned about her. We learned about what her needs were and who she was, what her sort of daily experience was, connected her with cannabis and she's doing ballet again. Um, and I had, the, I had the privilege actually of interviewing her. Um, and there's so many stories like yours and like hers um, where people are finding relief, but the, the, the world isn't hearing it. Um, it's a real tragedy, I think, not just in the medical industry, but, you know, why aren't the news groups covering it? Why, why, why isn't the general public, you know, who's clearly voiced their approval? You know, 91% um, of the U.S. population thinks cannabis should be legal or legalized in, in a recent well, medical you know, research study. Absolutely. Right. And Gallup just put out a poll that 68% believe that it should be made legal, period. Right. So, you know, yeah. I, and, you know, I I, uh, I would would ask you, like, you know, as we look at what's come down the pipe already, mm-hmm. it seems to me as if, you know, getting you and other doctors like yourself out there and giving you the platform, though you have a platform, but giving you a bigger platform, would be kind of like the answer to all of our prayers, but it, <laughs> but it does. I don't know about that, but I appreciate the vote. Yeah, I, I completely agree, Montel. I think you know the idea that we have to um, look outside the box, as you said, is is brilliant. I think we need to be evaluating what is what is real and what is sort of 
you know, unfortunately to use the term alternative facts, you know, we live in a world now where anybody with a platform, anybody with a microphone can put stuff out there. Um, and unfortunately the old industry is really set in its ways. Um, so one of the things that I'm trying to do is bring new technology. I'm trying to bring new platforms out there. Um, you know, one of the things I'd like to introduce, um, you know, I think patients need a responsible data informed partner. Um, with whom they can efficiently iterate over time. So it's not a one-time thing. They have to collect information over time to define the cannabis care regimen that's most effective for them. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting about modern culture is we get the idea that people are unique. We have these genetics tests where I can see kind of what my deal is about, which might be different from someone else's. Um, but that needs to apply to all care. And physicians have to not only learn about patients and listen to people, but they have to treat individuals as individuals. Um, so to this end, you know, I'm currently working on a, a patient companion app and a digital care platform called EO. Um, using EO, patients can provide a detailed medical cannabis use history, a daily schedule profile that in turn is provided to a data care model, um, and then to my clinical team. The model and the team then provide the patient with a personalized calendar-based and clinician-reviewed care plan that tells them what to take, how much to take, and when to take it. Uh, importantly, the patient also gets a personalized shopping list. So they're not sent out into these stores with thousands of things they've never seen before, uh, but they get this list to purchase from their local dispensary that mat matches their care plan. The patient uses the products and the recommended doses um, at, at, at whatever times where we're sort of indicating working around their schedule. And then they provide feedback about how they're feeling through the app. This feedback, I mean, imagine that we can actually talk to our patients and learn what's going on. Right now, if a doctor gives you a prescription, they send you on your way. They don't know if you picked it up. They don't know if you're taking it. They don't know if anything's getting better. That, that, that's mind blowing to me. Um, but, but I'm trying to do it right in cannabis. Um, and this, this feedback about how they're feeling through the app is incremental, is, is instrumental into, into making their, their journey better. Um, it's, it's a conversation. It's, it's a living sort of lab. And is that that's what you're doing with your CED? Clinic that you found? No, that's a different company. Um, okay. The CED clinic is my patient care company. So just like you go to a uh, an orthopedist, if you have bone or you know muscle related issues, you come to a cannabis physician as an expert. That's the Seed Clinic. Um, I've uh, I've started another company, this EO, which is the patient companion care. I'm basically trying to create the best personalized cannabis care at scale. You know, I'm only one doctor. I can only see people in my clinic at a very limited rate. Um, I'm, I'm only human, but if, if we can figure out a way to bring artificial intelligence and clinicians sort of all together in one space, patients get to have the benefit of both, you know, uh, crowdsource knowledge, what everybody else is finding helpful, but also data mining, learning what's coming out of the research um, at a very detailed level and putting it all together to serve people. I think that's, that's what a medical specialty would be like in the 21st century, you know? That's such an incredible evolution in patient healthcare provider in information when it comes to the cannabis industry. Are you sharing that with other doctors? I am. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm trying to get as many people on board as I can. Um, I'm, I'm giving lectures as widely as I can. Um, my doors are open. I really love teaching on social media. I have a YouTube channel. I have a blog. I'm sort of putting myself out there as best as I know how. Um, but, you know, you, I think, are, are a voice of reason. And I'm, I'm thankful for you and other folks like Sanjay Gupta who are putting the word out and helping everybody learn, because I think it's it's to your credit that this movement is really moving forward. 
But do you still do you feel that there's still a stigma around cannabis and as a treatment option in the medical field? Do you think that there are some doctors who still feel like, I ah, know I'm not going to go down this path at all. I don't care what they do, but I'm not doing it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, when I first started, people looked at me a little bit cockeyed and said, you're doing what? Why? What are you crazy? You're a good doctor. You're going to help people. You don't need to waste your life. Um, and that's evolved over time. You know, I've, I've had the, the awkward privilege of watching the industry change. And doctors used to say, oh, don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. And, you know, we have much better options in the pharmaceutical cabinet. That evolved to, well, if you're going to do it, I don't want to hear about it. And then eventually that turned into, okay, if you're going to do it, just make sure you do it safe. Maybe go see someone who knows about it. And actually, in the last few months, I've had specialists. I have a neurologist specialist in Massachusetts. I have um, certainly psychiatrists who are sending me patients and plenty of pain patients who are coming in even before they pursue other pharmaceuticals. So I think the tide really is turning. Um, but, you know, fortunately, I live in a bubble and Massachusetts, Boston area is very wise um, in terms of academics and understanding. Um, but there are very, you know, there are too many people in this country and around the world that are still in bubbles of ignorance where there is stigma. You know, just um, just today, Minnesota um, is making CBD products illegal. Um, legal or illegal? Illegal. Um, and they are federally legal as of 2018. So, the, you know, the tide isn't always moving forward everywhere. Um, but I'm doing the, what I can to, to, to make my part a little bit better. It's, 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 it, it just strikes me as being just absolutely incredibly stupid that somebody would now try to put that cat back in the bag. I mean, unfortunately, the old blue is out the gate. Old blue, you're not coming back. You know what I'm saying? As much as, so all they're doing by making it illegal is driving it underground. And, right. you know, um, it, it's it's really absolutely ridiculous. I mean, you know, um, they, I can't understand why would people refute, you, you have been looking at data collected from over 250,000 patients. That's probably more data than collected of people who use aspirin. Yeah, no, the, the studies, the published literature, I actually did this analysis, the published literature about cannabis is, is 10 times the amount of information that we have about things like Lyme disease or even, even double the amount of information we know about the common cold. There's a lot of literature out there and it's published and it's free to read. Um, as I said, I, I kind of bringing it all into one place so people don't even have an excuse. You don't even have to pay to read it. Um, but it's hard. I mean, there's a lot to learn and, and too few clinicians to, to learn it. You know, we live in times where there's a huge shortage of doctors. You know, we have plenty of states these days where doctors are flying in just to see people. Uh, I know. You know yeah, that's one of the things that people didn't understand is even before COVID, you know, we knew that 2022 to 2024, we were going to have shortages in the nursing community of up to almost a half a million nurses short. Why? Because a lot of them have been aging out. And why? Because a lot of our younger generations have been too busy trying to be Internet stars and go to school to want to be nurses and doctors. And then we, you know, I think that that was published by the you know National uh, uh, Nurses Society. And, you know, the AMA stated four years ago that by 2024, we were going to be short somewhere between 250 to 400,000 doctors in America because people have not just been going or not going to medical school anymore. 250,000 doctors. You are right. I mean, that's scary. That's scary. That means that, you know, whether we like it or not, what people don't understand is this whole idea of, of doling out healthcare is going to be a reality in America. We, 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 we like to to make these statements that, you know, any socialist society, look how long it takes them to have an appointment. Look how long it's going to take here in the United States for you to start getting an appointment with doctors when this generation of doctors ages out. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, most people's experience of, of the medical visit is the doctor barely looks at me. They're so in a rush and they're in, in one door, out the other, you're kind of turnstiling patients so rapidly. Part of the reason for that is because of the shortage. Doctors don't have time to see enough people in the day. And then take a step back and toward this conversation, how are they going to learn, let alone master an understanding of cannabis? It's a real crisis in my view. And, you know, we, we looked at uh, cannabis being considered an essential service in the majority of the states that have a medical cannabis program. And I read something, you know, uh, and maybe <laughs> this, is, this is what I couldn't understand. I think it was about mm, a month and a half ago now, more like two months ago. I read this this thing that kind of blipped through, you know, one of my you know news apps that was talking about the fact that they had discovered that there were constituents in certain flavonoids of cannabis that demonstrated a greater anti-inflammatory capability than the anti-inflammatories that we have in the marketplace for COVID in the lungs. I was like, are you kidding me? But of course the medical community would be afraid to say something about cannabis and COVID, right? Right. No. And I, I think it's it's a very hot topic, you know, both because of the tremendous tragedy around the world, um, but also because the standard of information that we have, which is not nothing, to be perfectly honest. it's We know a lot about cannabinoids against viruses. There are actually six or seven studies that have looked at how cannabis fights viruses successfully. Um, so the information is out there that cannabis does stuff with viruses. And, and just to pause there, even that is more than what we have in Western medicine today. We don't have good antiviral medicines. Um, and bring it home to COVID, you know, standard of care now is, is remdesivir. Um, and that has been studied against CBD, against cannabinoids. Um, in some research, that's still outstanding. Um, but in a couple of cases, in at least one published case, um, the cannabinoid was working better. Um, you know, and it's it's not crazy. It's actually not so surprising. There, there, are, there are multiple avenues where cannabis is effective. Um, you know, one of them. Go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Keep, keep um, so one of the one of the avenues that cannabis is effective against viruses is actually the ACE2 receptor. Uh, most people have heard about this. Um, it's some of the reason that a lot of people who are on heart medicines are at increased risk and people with um, long-term illnesses, chronic illnesses are, are subject to, to, to worsening symptoms of COVID um, is the ACE2 receptor. And actually cannabinoids can help block that. Um, and also once the virus gets in, um, the virus has to replicate and kind of get out of the cell to make new viruses traveling. Um, that process is governed by a process called transcription. It's basically um, the body's natural machinery reading the virus RNA and printing out a new viron. Um, that process can also be interrupted um, with can cannabinoids. Um, and, we, we, and that's the same thing that we know that, you know, the processes in cancer can be disrupted by cannabinoids, right? I mean, uh, there's been research and there's a couple of peer-reviewed documents that are out there discussing the fact that they know that, you know, cannabis affects, you know, or I think it may be THC specifically, I might be wrong, but affects the ability of a cancer cell to find a blood source, right? Yeah. So there are a lot of ways that that um, cannabinoids can help. Um, PPAR gamma, for those who are interested in looking it up, um, is, a, is, a, is a cellular nuclear um, modulator of, of transcription. Um, and it helps undo damage of the cell. And, and one of the ways I, I like to describe it is um, when cells are um, overrun by cancer. Cancer sort of overtakes the machinery of the cell. It, it shuts off the cell's auto-destruct button. Um, it gums it up, as it were. Um, and interestingly, 
cannabinoids are communication channels in the cell. Um, and when a cell sees the cannabis communicating with, um, with the cell, um, by hook or by crook, that apoptosis mechanism, that self-destruct mechanism is ungummed. Um, and those cells which are overrun by cancer sometimes um, become self-destructing. Um, and, and the mechanisms are not so clear. Um, for those who are watching, we don't have a sniper rifle, this cannabis kills this cancer. Um, but in a Petri dish and some, some very convincing models, we do see um, cancers being affected by cannabinoids in ways that are remarkable, not just apoptosis, self-destructing, but also preventing cells from traveling, uh, preventing these cancer cells from communicating. Um, and it's, it's really quite astounding. And, and of course, you know, there's not enough research, there's not enough money, and there's not enough political support behind it to get the ball rolling as fast as it should. Um, but by golly, there are a lot of people suffering that need help. Absolutely. And I mean, that's part of the whole idea about the endocannabinoid system is really what literally helps the cells stay in that Goldilocks zone. I mean, stay in that, that uh, operating at peak efficiency. So that uh, uh, follows right in line with what you're talking about. What's some of the most exciting studies that you've seen been published on cannabis, let's say in this past year? Boy, well, this this I just gave this talk last night on uh, cannabis and COVID, and that stuff is the most exciting. I think we're just seeing um, Omicron coming on and it's it's just threatening so many people and, and scaring almost everybody. It's, it's really uprooting the world's um, way of life. So those, those are most exciting to me. Um, and there's a ton of research out there, um, you know, over 500 clinical trials that are sort of looking into cannabinoids against COVID. Um, many, many more that have already found interesting, you know, material. I think it's important for people to, to think outside the box. You know, and I think the idea that most people have about cannabis is, is sorely mistaken, um, certainly in the medical community. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to do um, is, is educate digitally and, and, and compete with, with, as you say, the internet superstars. Um, but I'm also publishing a book and um, I have the great privilege of trying to educate the population. Um, the publishing company, Ben Bella, is going to distribute um, to a wide audience here in the United States and you know, potentially abroad, a grown-up's guide to cannabis, understanding how the medical applications are what they are, how to understand cannabis, where does it fit in the big picture, um, how can this be incorporated in an everyday life um, for a lot well, of people. In, in your, I mean, in your opinion, what, what are some of the conditions that you think, you know, are more suitable for cannabis as a treatment option? So a lot of people think that it's only for folks who are dealing with terrible seizures or multiple sclerosis, um, all kinds of tragic illnesses. And, and, and the truth is, they are often very well helped by cannabis. You know, to some to some degree, people who are suffering need help. And if cannabis, even from a, just a symptomatic management perspective, can help people sleep better or help them feel less stressed, boy, I don't know too many people who, who don't deal with that. I mean, almost everybody's stressed out. Almost everybody has trouble sleeping from time to time. Um, but the major illnesses that are effectively treated by cannabis fall into essentially chronic pain categories. So back pain, uh, muscle pains, rickety joints as we get older. Um, and then the second category, anxiety and depression, um, emotional sort of illnesses, um, really, but, but even troubles are, are well managed by cannabis, both in the long term and in short term. Um, and then the third is, is sleeplessness. Um, and, and one of the things that is unusual and different about cannabis is it is not a single pathway sort of pharmaceutical. You know, people don't often under, understand um, in order to be passed through FDA approval, a pharmaceutical medicine has to have very limited numbers of ingredients, maybe one ingredient, rarely two, almost never three. 
um, the stuff that we get from a pharmacy is very, very fine-tuned. And it's studied to be super safe. I mean, none of these companies want to spend their millions making drugs and then get sued for things that are not safe. Um, cannabis is a compound, as we were talking about earlier, that is hundreds of compounds thick. And we know that that stuff, the, the, the cannabis that has lots of different compounds, is actually better than the stuff which is isolated. So if we have a pure THC molecule or a pure CBD molecule, even a pure combination, it's still inferior to the natural plant. You know, nature had it right the way it made it. Um, and that's not something that the pharmaceutical companies can compete with. Right. Absolutely. Well, look, Doc, I can't say thank you enough for being a part of today's show. I mean, I think you've just you've just hit it out the park with my viewers who are, are going to be really interested in maybe hoping that you'll come back when you publish a book and we can talk a little bit more about that then, right? I'd be honored, Montel. Thank you. And so if people wanted to find out more information from you, Dr. Kaplan, where did they go? My website is cedclinic.com. Um, that's catelephantdogclinic.com. Um, and I'm happy to reach out on social media and anywhere you can find me. I'm, I'm trying to be out there as, as widely as I can. Well, I'm telling you, we're going to help to make sure you put you out there as widely as we can. And I want you to make sure that you share this information with all of your friends as you view more Let's Be Blunt with Montel and understand that Dr. Kaplan is no joke and we need to have more Dr. Kaplan's out there. So, sir, thank you so much. Please stay safe. The holidays are coming up. I hope you and your family are well and I hope you stay safe. And thanks for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And I definitely want to have you back. You always have an invite here, whatever you want. Thank you, Montel. Happy holidays. I appreciate the chance. Oh, sir, thank you so much. Make sure you tune in to the next Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Uh, 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 uh.